Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much, Jane, and good morning, church. My name's Darren. It's a privilege to open God's word with you. As we begin with this this difficult subject that that stretches our mind, subjects of judgment and sin and and God's character, and we need God's help to understand this, this challenge. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for the the gift of Scripture, and it is fit for equipping and building up your church. And even though we wrestle and struggle with these weighty topics, we pray, Father, that your Spirit would enlighten us, stir us, stir faith up in us, and show us the gospel in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Oh, well, the uh, influential missionary Elizabeth Elliot, in her own autobiography, as she was growing up in Belgium in her missionary family, she talks about her days off with her young brother, Tommy, and they were allowed, for, for some reason, you know, times have changed, they played with paper bags uh, that were kept under the sink, and they would play with these bags for hours on the condition that they tidied them up afterwards. But as young children often do, uh, they forgot about um, to tidy up. They forgot to do all of their chores. As Tommy exclaimed, we haven't done our piano practice. And he bolted into the lounge. He sat down at the piano. And because it was a a missionary family, he started practicing his his piano hymns. And then, well, of course, you can guess what happened. The father comes home, Mr. Elliot. He says, what on earth is going on? All of this mess, the kitchen's a wreck. And Tommy says, don't worry, Daddy. I'm singing songs to Jesus. 
And she can remember very clearly her father's response. It's in our passage this morning. He said, Tommy, it is no good to obey Jesus and sing to Jesus when you're being disobedient. To obey is better than sacrifice. And that's where we are today. That's our slogan. That's the verse I want you to take away as we look at this tragic story of the collapse of King Saul. He needed to learn that obeying was indeed better than sacrifice. For in fact, he thought he was obeying when he was in fact being completely disobedient. And the tragedy was it led to his disqualification as king and chaos in his own life in the country. And we're going to follow the narrative this morning uh, and we're going to see three things, hopefully a terrible mission, a partial obedience and a total rejection. But the tragedy starts a few chapters earlier in chapter 8. We should have seen the red flags coming. Uh, Israel wasn't supposed to want a king. They weren't supposed to ask for a king. God was supposed to be their king. God knew they would ask for one anyway. And they asked and well, so God gave them what they wanted a human king who was tall and impressive like everyone else around them, like all the other cultures and nations, an impressive human who would fight their battles. And God had warned them through the prophet Samuel. He said, this is a bad idea. Don't take a human king. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your livestock and tax you. I'll be your king. And the people still said, no, we want a king like everyone else to rule over us. And it was a real theological tragedy as well. For you see, Israel meant to, Israel was supposed to be holy. And when I mean that, I don't just mean righteous. I mean that they were to be set apart. They were to be different from everyone else. And so in, the, in Israel saying, we want to be like everyone else, they were becoming less than what God had made them to be. And well, over the next few chapters, Saul we see he, he had some victories. There's not a lot of detail about that. He didn't last long. The author of Samuel seems more interested in showing us his collapse. He'd already lost his dynasty in 1 Samuel 13. You can read that later. But now we come to Saul's monumental collapse. And I want us to pay great attention to this because I think 1 Samuel is incredibly nuanced in its understanding of the human psyche our pragmatism, our self-deception, our blindness to sin, how far we will go away to get from it. One Samuel seems to understand the, the complexity of humans in a way that no Old Testament narrative, except, except for the Psalms, but no Old Testament narrative is what I mean. Um, it, it really is very profound in human understanding. And, uh, as, as, uh, and I want to say... I don't stand in judgment of King Saul this morning. Uh, I, certainly, I certainly do not, for I think there's far more of him in all of us than we would ever care or wish to admit. But the context for our reading this morning begins with a terrible mission. And I suppose it would have shocked us if it was read out in verses 1 uh, to 10. I, I suspect it would have shocked us for the, the wrong reasons. Uh, for verses 3 of our chapter, Saul was to execute judgment on a group of people called the Amalekites. And not just execute judgment, he was to wipe them out. Man, woman, and beast. Nothing was to be spared. And as we read these words, as we hear them in the Old Testament, we feel the weight of them. They can frighten us. It is a terrible and it is a, a dreadful thing. I acknowledge this. 
and it provokes terrible questions in us. Is, is the, our God, the God of the Bible, is, is he asking for an ethnic genocide? Uh, or perhaps maybe some of your friends who don't come to church, they incorrectly say things like, well, I like the sound of the New Testament God more than the God of the Old Testament. But of course, we know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and it is the same character in both Testaments. God does not change. And as a caveat, there's a few things that help me with difficult passages like this in the Old Testament. And firstly, uh, it, the, 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 but it is still challenging. The first is that this is not so much an ethnic genocide as it is an ethical one. Verses 1 to 2 of the passage, God instructs Saul that he is to be the agent of judgment upon the Amalekites. For when God brought the Israelites from Egypt in the Exodus, in Exodus 17, we see that they were a violent and bloody people. And they came out against God's people and they plundered them and they ransacked them. And God had not forgotten this sin. And he said, now Saul, you will be my agent of judgment. And secondly, and I think more thankfully, is that in the new covenant Christians, we are called to live at peace. We're not called to these missions or these tasks. Uh, We're certainly not to avenge sin and we are to leave judgment and retribution to the Lord. And we thank God thank God that he will do that one day. What perhaps doesn't shock us but should shock us from this passage is that God has an opinion. God does does judge sin. And when we stand back in the supreme plan and story of the Bible, we see a God who is loving and gracious. But to be loving and gracious, he must be just. He must hold up both sides of the coin. He will judge sin, and he is the only one who will judge it rightly. And no sin will be forgotten. He says there will be a day of reckoning for all people. And the day of reckoning for the Amalekites was here, and it was now. And it is a frightening, and it is a terrible picture of what all humanity deserves. But perhaps we're shocked by this. We feel more the the cultural and human side of it, because perhaps like Saul as we will see, we, we tend to minimize or downplay the severity of sin and, and what it costs God to, to solve it. And what we see in response to this terrible mission, Saul uh, obeys with a partial obedience. We're told in verses 8 and 9, just before our reading, that he duly defeats the Amalekites. He gets the job done, except he keeps their king, King Agag, alive, and he keeps the choice livestock as well. And uh, well, Where our reading picks up, Samuel is alerted to this. And it would almost be comical if it wasn't so tragic. As uh, Samuel is alerted to his disobedience and deception, he's told to get up and go. He's been crying out all night. And Samuel can't find him because Saul is not where he's supposed to be. He's told he's gone to a place called Carmel. And what's he doing there? He's building a monument and a statue to himself. If it's ever a red flag, do not memorialize your mistakes for all future generations to see. And he comes out. You can just imagine these two men. It's like a pantomime. Saul walks out confidently and at peace. He says, the Lord bless you. I have fulfilled the Lord's instructions. And the drama, the narrative, this, this, this black comedy is that we know what God knows. God knows, Samuel knows, and we've been told. Everyone in the room apart from Saul knows that he has not been obedient. And like a pantomime or a children's cartoon, as Saul says, I have kept the Lord's command. And then you can just imagine the cows and the sheep just come into focus just behind him. As Samuel says, 
Can you hear what I hear? You know, uh, what's that? Uh, Saul, I see behind you. Look behind you, Saul. What is this bleeding of sheep and this lowing of cows? He knows, we know, God knows that he has not obeyed. He has kept King Agag and he has kept the cattle. And we're not told why. It might have even been logical. Perhaps it was economic reasons. Perhaps it was a ransom. Who knows? Perhaps the men were going to have a Korean barbecue. We just are not told and we shouldn't read into it the things the Bible doesn't tell us. But what challenges us, I think, from this passage is that on paper, this doesn't seem that bad. There was logical, there was economic benefit. Uh, um, Saul was far by a long stretch from being the worst king of Israel. I mean, things would go far worse than this. Uh, King David, his successor, the, the, the glorious king of Israel, he broke half of the Ten Commandments in one night, and he was okay. So what's going on here? Well, firstly, I think the first thing we have to remind ourselves at the start is that God is always God, and he is the only one who is just and right in his commands. He is the only one who is perfect and has authority to speak. And Saul, what he has done is he has received God's word through the prophet at that time. He has taken it upon himself to change and improve God's word. And we see when people take it upon themselves to change or improve God's word as they see fit, it leads to chaos in his own life, chaos in the country, ultimately to his death. We see it the whole way through Scripture. We see it all the way through the history of the church. And we see it today in churches and church leaders when we are so quick to separate ourselves from the parts of the Bible that we simply don't like or that we don't want to sit under anymore. When we do that, we are no different to the Israelites in in 1 Samuel chapter 8 when we say we want to be like everyone else. We don't want to sit under God anymore. We want to be like all the culture around us. Um, We're no different at all. Do you ever hear people say that? Oh, God didn't mean that. Or that's not really what the scripture means here. Uh, Or it's the 21st century. The church has to get with the times. Isn't that the very first lie that the snake told Eve in the garden? God didn't really mean what he said. That's what's going on here. Um, And when we say that, when we do that, when we change God's word, when we seek to get out from under God, what we're saying is we don't believe in the Bible and we don't believe in the God who spoke it. And we see very clearly here, as far as God is concerned, perhaps not in our hearts, but partial obedience is always disobedience. And as our passage began in verses 10 to 11, the word came to Samuel And as Samuel's up all night, God tells Samuel that he regrets making Saul king, for he has not obeyed him. And this is an important question, for it's not saying that God has changed his mind. It's not saying that God has, oops, I've made a bad choice. I better sort this problem out pretty quickly. Or if I knew Saul was going to do this, you know, of course I wouldn't have made him king. This is not human error. Saul is the one who has changed. Saul is the one who has sinned. And even though God and his divine majesty and providence and sovereignty, even though he has brought these circumstances about, even though he knew that this was going to happen, God is still, still excuse me, able to bemoan the tragedy of sin. He is, even though he bemoans it and he, and he laments it, he is able to use it for his good and own and divine and wise purposes. And while Saul is 
in trouble. For Samuel is told to get up and go, go find this monument man, Samuel. That's what the Lord says. And we see how blinding sin can be for him. Saul cannot see the incongruity of his actions. And it's a warning to us, I think, that, that a clear conscience is no assurance of a correct relationship with God. A clear conscience is no assurance of a clear and correct relationship with God. And he comes out and he says, Bless you, I fulfilled the word of the Lord. But God is clear in verse 13. He has not carried out my instructions. I regret making him king. And while we see this disobedience, it leads to Saul's total rejection. Saul's response shows how far the problem goes. Firstly, when Samuel confronts him after challenging him on the sheep, he says, well, it was, it was the men. Uh, the men did it. Uh, the, the Hebrew is actually much more rough. He just says it was them. It's very vague. But we know what this sounds like. It's a total failure of leadership. It's a total excuse. He's saying everyone else was at it. So don't single me out like some sort of political bluster clutching at straws. I wonder what it would sound like today for us in our church or, or outside. You know, when people say, oh, well, you know, everyone's struggling with it, don't worry. Or everyone's looking at it. Everyone's going there. Everyone's buying it. Everyone's smoking it. Everyone wants it. It's not such a big deal, is it? Um, or perhaps we just say, I was under a lot of pressure or stress. That's why I did it. Uh, we have a proclivity. Samuel shows us our proclivity to downplay or to minimize and excuse our own sin. Even even if it was common sense, even if it was logical, even if it was advantageous for you, your family, or our church. God's word is never trumped by common sense. In fact, I would argue the opposite. It is when God's word doesn't make sense. It is when God's word does challenge us that we find out truly who we trust and who we obey and who is God in our own life. Is it him or is it us? And sadly, well, it gets worse. He's not just excusing it or downplaying it. He's making it religious as well. The Lord bless you. We kept the choice cow, Samuel. Yes, we did, but we did it to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. And I think there's a big clue in there with that preposition, your God. It shows us that Saul has long walked away. He's turned away. But what he's saying is, yes, this was a sin, but my motives were okay, and ultimately it was for something better. Yes, I, I cut corners, but it was for Jesus. Like that little boy playing the piano at the start. Don't worry, Daddy, I'm singing songs to Jesus. But as we will see, this doesn't quite cut it. And it's a challenge for us in our own lives. How often do we, we cut corners, we downplay it, we, we make excuses, and we use God as the reason why we perhaps did something. We lift from the till to put it in the communion plate. We break, we, you know, we drive through the red traffic lights to get to church. You know, that, that's silly. But only you can do the hard work of, of where that's going on in your own life. God does not need us to sin to achieve his purposes. I assure you of that. And well, to this whole charade, this failure of leadership, to this sin and disobedience, Samuel says, stop, enough. You haven't obeyed. You pounced on the plunder. And that poetic little phrase even though you were small in your own eyes, which I think is rather comical because he's standing right next to a statue of himself that he's just made. But what, he, what Samuel is reminding, himself, reminding Saul of is that Saul came from nothing. 
He was nothing. He was hiding in the baggage. And by God's grace, God made him everything. He made him king of Israel. And it's almost like Samuel is lamenting. He said, why didn't you obey Saul? And Saul can't hear him. Sin has blinded him. The shadow was very dark. And he just repeats his claims. The men did it, and I did it for God. He says it again. And Samuel responds with those devastating and famous words that many of us will be well aware of. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is to better than the fat of rams. To obey is better than sacrifice. Pretty jarring words. Uh, what it is saying is that it is more pleasing to God than any offering we make is the obedience of our heart. And this is a theme that runs right through Scripture. Jesus says, if you love me, you will do what I command. Paul opens and closes the book of Romans with the phrase, you receive Christ in order that you would both believe and obey. And I think what the Bible is trying to show us is the pursuit of obedience is the measure of faith. The pursuit of obedience is the measure of faith. Our obedience has nothing to do with our salvation, but the measure of faith is the response of our obedience. It's the, our, I got tongue-tied. Our measure of faith, <laughs> pursuit of obedience is the measure of our faith. It has nothing to do with our salvation, but it shows us how much we trust and put our faith in the one who has saved us and delivered us, how much we respect him and want to honor him with our lives. And what Samuel is saying to Saul is no amount of turning up to communions, no amount of Christian service or Christian tithing or giving will cover the absence of an obedient heart. And this is very sobering, for I know and you know that we all sin. We are all disobedient. We all go our own way. But where do we go with this? Well, Samuel declares this terrifying pronouncement, this shocking revelation to Saul, and it almost appears that Saul is just about to get it. For what does he say? He says, uh, I have sinned. He says, uh, just the next slide, please. I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's commands and your instructions. And you think, okay, now he's getting it. But then we realize he is not. For he said, I was afraid of the men, so I gave it to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so I may worship the Lord. And I was thinking about this. As I said earlier, Saul did most of the job and was disqualified. David broke half the commands and was restored. Saul cut some corners and he loses everything and the kingship is taken away from him. The Lord rejected you as king over Israel. The more I thought about it, I realized that Saul was doing a total or a partial obedience. He is also doing a partial repentance for he is more worried in getting right with God as he is as getting, uh, what, getting right with people. He's more worried about what people think of him than what God thinks of him. He's sorry, but he's only sorry really that he was caught. He was only sorry that there's consequences to his crime and that he's been found out. If there were no consequences, I think he'd probably go straight back to doing it anyway, if there were none. True repentance, on the other hand, is not quick in seeking to get restored. Saul just wants everything to be made better and to go back and worship with the other elders. But true repentance, as we'll come to see in a few weeks with King David, there will be a heartfelt desire to listen to God's word. There will be a desire to obey it. Um, there will be an end to excuses and minimization and denial. There will be a taking on of responsibility for what we have done wrong. We will start with turning back to God. 
a Godward orientation in all of our hearts, a Godward orientation that will result in action, a result that, is not, uh, that requires perfection, but it will require a change and certainly a desire to change, not a concern over self-pity or what people might think about us, but a heartfelt cry to be correct and in right relationship with the Lord above all else. And yet, sadly, we see with Saul, it appears that he has already walked away. And the pronouncement is terrible. And at the end of this chapter, him and Samuel part for good. These two never see each other again. And as a result, Saul is cut off from the prophet and the word of God. And as I said, I don't stand in judgment of him. Saul didn't want the Lord's kingship. He didn't want to obey. The people in 1 Samuel 8, they didn't want God to be their king And all those years later, when Jesus stood in front of Pilate and the people and the leaders, and they said, we have no king but Caesar. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of humanity. This is the story of you and I trying to remove God's rightful kingship and lordship over us. How do you fix that? Where where do you go? Well, we don't have much hope in these verses, but we do get a hint of it a few uh, sentences later. As the Lord speaks to Samuel and he says, How long will you mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Of course, he was talking about King David. You see, Saul was the king that the people wanted. He was not the king that the people needed. And God, in his providence, he had a plan for another greater king, a king who would be for his own heart, And as we will see from the story of the Bible, it was one of his descendants who would be the king we all long for, the king we all need, the perfect king who wouldn't take our children or who wouldn't take us prisoner, wouldn't take our lives, but one who would give his life for us on the cross and fight the battles that we really do need fought with. Uh, The king who would come and show us his kindness on the cross and yet also show us the mess and disobedience that we are in so that we know, and so that we can be without excuse, so we don't need to minimize or downplay our sin. We don't need to blame anyone else. We don't need to say we were being religious. And he shows us this unconditional love that even though we've sinned, he loves us anyway. And that's the change. That's the power that helps us to be obedient, to follow him, to want to serve this king who has come for us. One of my favorite books is Bonhoeffer's book on community life uh, together. And he writes this, I think it's very moving. Nothing is more liberating to see that you are so loved to finally admit that you are flawed. It is the grace of the gospel, which is so hard for the pious to understand, that it confronts us with the truth and says, you are a sinner, a great desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner that you are to God who loves you. He wants you as you are. Wouldn't that be nice to know you're so loved that you could even admit your weaknesses? That's what I think Samuel was trying to say to Saul that day. Saul, you are a great, big, desperate sinner. Now you turn back to the Lord, and Saul couldn't do that. And if you'd permit me for a moment, could I say to you, church, you great, big, desperate bunch of sinners, can we stop playing charades? Can we take off the mask and we turn back to God with repentance and with faith and find forgiveness and restoration and life in the real King who has truly come for us. Amen. Amen. Let me pray.
Father, thank you. Thank you for uh, the message of Saul that challenges us. Lord, we so long to obey you, and I pray that you would give us a spirit of obedience, Lord. You would help us to see the King and and the the beauty of the gospel, and it would move us into action and service of you. We are sorry for the areas of our life that we know that have gone wayward and the sins, Lord, in our life that we do not even see. Help us, Father, to walk in your ways all of our days. And would, would it be the beauty and truth of the gospel that always guides us. In Jesus' name, amen.